Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Rachel Larson has been busy since last time we talked to her. As an enthusiastic researcher based out of Arizona State University, Larson has added veteran suicide prevention to her long list of research topics. While she's pivoted from her focus on sport performance and more specifically internal and external cueing, she is embracing this niche population. As she discusses, veterans have significant and unique risk factors that contribute to suicidality. Hear how her team is crunching the numbers, particularly in Arizona, to get ahead of this crisis. Here it is, episode 473. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Welcome to another episode of the premier podcast on strength and conditioning, Power Athlete Radio. We got a good one today. We got a heavy one yeah. today. We have our old friend Rachel Larson, mm-hmm. who's a PhD professor at Arizona State, mm-hmm. coming back to discuss her latest project. So if you guys listened to episode, what was it? Three, 307. Yeah, 307. She was big on internal and external cueing, which was a pretty fascinating one if you guys want to link back to that. But now she has taken on a new project of getting in and assessing and understanding the causes of veteran suicide. Mm-hmm. So they're using, you know, in her home state, she was approached uh, to go in there and start, you know, basically doing the forensic research to understand how they can prevent this problem. Yeah, and we lead off with Rachel's mission, and she explains how she was presented with this opportunity and how it connects to her passions, and then we get into the statistics and some heavy information. Yeah, no, I mean, suicide is definitely something that's not talked about, and especially in this time, you know, issues with mental health, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we've been at war for over two decades. I mean, I remember General LeCamera making the comment that there are people serving in the U.S. military that were not alive during 9-11 crazy that blew me away that was actually in 2018 so obviously he or i think his comment was kids will soon be joining the military that weren't allowed or weren't alive during Mm 9-11 which i you know just goes to show how long we've been at war and you know as we know wars of occupations are usually transfers of wealth so um you know obama campaigned on getting us out of afghanistan trump said we get out of afghanistan um and i think he did a good job of you know scaling it back and i think now with you know sleepy joe Hiding Joe Biden, we're going to get back into this thing a little bit. But it's become a hell of a problem. I mean, veteran suicides, I mean, over 20 a day are are lost to suicide. Yeah. And um, just understanding the mechanisms and the problems associated with it uh, is pretty pretty heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. And our aim with this is 100% awareness. Rachel's going to go into all of her her research, her projects, and then down the line. She's only been at this this project for, so she's been the principal investigator for about a year now with the current project. But we ask her the future state, and awareness is going to be key in implementing some upstream opportunities systemically. But that won't stop you as an individual listening to this podcast within your community. Yeah, no, one of the pieces we discuss is how to get involved. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what you as an individual can do because uh, suicide is preventable. I mean, and it's just, yeah, no, it's it's a pretty heavy deal. And the fact that it's not getting the airplay that it deserves is another, you know, sad fact. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's a a heavy subject. It's not something that you're going to hear on the 24-hour news cycle, but it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, To my surprise, she talked about that the VA is extremely behind this and being involved. Like whenever we, we hear anything within, you know, the, uh, you know, the media with the VA, it's usually pretty negative. Like it's just this kind of black hole that, 
you know, people are getting fired programs here that never seem to go anywhere. So at least that's my public, that that's my perception as an outsider. Mm -hmm. I've never served in the military, never dealt with the VA, but um, her talking about, you know, the VA has really changed and they're making this a huge priority to move forward and, you know, protect the people that protect us. Yeah. At the national level. And she's making an impact at the state level. And we encourage you through this whole episode to, to listen and take some good notes and she keys in on different risk factors or behaviors that you can be look on the on the on the lookout for, as well as opportunities for you to make an impact within your community, whether you yourself are a veteran or not. You know, Tex, I just noticed you're wearing my most favorite shirt that I've ever created for Power Athlete, aka the CrossFit Football Austra- or uh, uh, New Zealand All Blacks rugby jerseys that I had to purchase and then printed. Oh, well. And then the price point was too high because I actually buy, I had to buy them at retail. I love this thing. And, I mean, no, I'm stoked to see you wearing it. I mean, like, that's one of my favorite shirts I ever made. Well, we got a little humidity here. We, of course, it's Power Athlete Radio. We got to talk about the weather. <sighs> yeah, but, but this, let's talk about the merchandise. This wicks. If you guys are into Power Athlete and you're not wearing Power Athlete merchandise, you need to go to shop.powerathletehq.com and check out. We got a whole bunch of new stuff launching here mm-hmm. in, in Q2. Uh, we've really gone in and gone hard and gone big in terms of providing some really uh, high-end merchandise and sourcing some really good stuff. And, man, I would love to bring that shirt back. The thing's a home run. And the other thing, if you're listening to this podcast and you have not gone and given us a five-star rating, we need you to review it. We need you to go to any place that reviews you, you listen or you digest your content for podcasts. Go to the review. Give us a five-star Leave us something witty, intelligent that would be becoming of a listener of Power Athlete Radio. And if it's good and it causes us to laugh and get a good chuckle, then you know what? We'll read it here on the air and we'll take the winner and we're going to send you some gear. And don't be afraid to share with the iTunes folks your favorite episode. Which guests did you enjoy or direct them to a specific hotline topic that benefited your training, your health, your nutrition, your movement? And there you go. The One of our favorite episodes, and that's why we're bringing Rachel Larson back on. Episode yep. 307, check it after this, because we're going live. Ready? All right, Rachel, thank you for joining Power Athlete Radio for round two. We got a little different direction than our previous episode, but we always love when our guests are back on for round two, because we really get the opportunity to explore different topics, passions, and missions. And we got a big one today that we'll... And we're happy to welcome you back for. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I I believe episode 307. I'll confirm that if our previous one. But for those who are new to Power Athlete Nation, as we are. Power Athlete Radio. Power Athlete Radio. Why don't you give us an opportunity, quick introduction for yourself, elevator pitch, and then drop this mission that we are on today. All right, so um, I'm a lecturer in the Sports Science and Performance Programming Department uh, and also the Program Director for the Masters of Strength and Conditioning Program at Arizona State University. Uh, And we're housed within the College of Health Solutions. So historically, my research focus has been on realms of human performance um, in which I was on talking to you guys about some research uh, previously. But I wanted to give you maybe a little bit of background on how I got on the path that I'm on now, uh, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. um, Take as much time as you need. 
We'll give you a, <laughs> okay. yeah, no, there's a long leash. So, yeah, so it's a, a little bit of a, a different direction. Um, so right now within our uh, sports science uh, program, experiential learning is a large part of the education. And so we formed what was called an affinity network, uh, an athletics affinity network. So like-minded faculty, students, uh, and community partners, uh, kind of all working towards shared interests. Um, so some of the community partners that we had were like Phoenix Rising Soccer, Major League Baseball teams, um, and some high, local high schools. So students would gain practical experience basically by training and testing those athletes. Um, now I teach a lot of upper division courses uh, and typically mentor a lot of graduate students as well. And for some reason, I end up always mentoring a lot of our veteran students. Um, so, you know, opportunities for tactical work um, and those type of discussions had come up. So I started re-engaging with um, firefighters that I used to work with um, and also the Army Reserves that I used to train. Um, so that I could provide some tactical opportunities for my students. So basically uh, what came about from that is we started having the Army Reserves in and we're helping them prepare for the new ACFT. So they lacked resources, they never got their equipment, they didn't even have space to train. So they were actually coming to our downtown campus and I had about six students working with me uh, that were helping familiarize them uh, with the tests and then um, also kind of running them through each of the exercises, going over technique, that type of stuff. Um, so basically because my work with veteran students and then I was currently working with the military, I was approached by our Dean's office and asked to take over a project uh, in relation to veteran suicide. So they kind of interviewed me and asked, you know, what else, all are you familiar with, with military families, culture, you know, do you have any background in that? Um, so I explained how I grew up in um, kind of a military and veteran family. Uh, a lot of my family members, friends, all joined the military. Um, my father had served three tours in Vietnam. So I grew up with somebody, you know, that suffered from PTSD as well. So had that uh, experience. Um, and so they explained to me that they wanted me to kind of take over this project that would really just be running a veteran survey across the state of Arizona, and it would take place over the next year. Um, but eventually, uh, the College of Health Solutions wanted to expand on some initiatives that they had to engage more military and veteran um, in our community, um, kind of on a grander scale. So they introduced me to who I would be working with, which was the Arizona Coalition for Military Families. Um, and ACMF is really working to serve and support military members, uh, veterans and their families uh, throughout Arizona. They established a, um, I guess they, they launched a, a statewide upstream suicide prevention program called Be Connected. Um, and it includes a support line, some resource matching websites, um, a, a statewide team of navigators who actually um, resource match for you. Um, and then they also opened up training to everybody in the community on military culture. 
Um, so they've been recognized actually by the Office of the Governor, uh, Arizona Department of Veteran Services, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, they've won, you know, multiple recognition awards for their capacity building. Um, and so, and even been recognized by the White House. So I was really excited to work with them. So currently now I'm serving as the principal investigator, kind of running the data and evaluation team on multiple projects with ACMF. Um, I'm funded through ACMF and then also CDC Foundation uh, to prevent veteran suicide. So I do have to mention that although, you know, I um, work at ASU and I'm working with ACMF, I'm not speaking on behalf of them. Um, I'm just sharing my thoughts and experiences with the projects that um, I currently oversee. Who funds ACMF? Um, are they government funded, state funded, privately funded? They have 501c3? Um, they are both, a, they have both public and private partnerships. So they get multiple grants. They're, they have some funding from the state and some from um, federal enti entities as well. So all over the place. But yeah, they are a nonprofit. So they're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, um, you know, I mean, obviously if you watch the news and you, you know, pay attention to anything that's not so inflammatory, I mean, veteran suicide has become such an issue and it doesn't seem to get mm -hmm. enough light. And I know you're going through this with, uh, you know, surveys and really trying to crunch the data, but, um, like what kind of, I mean, right now we have what, about a million current, maybe, maybe, a, uh, a million, I think in the U S army. And I forget what the total number is last time we analyzed, it was probably close to 3 million like roughly 1% of the population serves in the military. Um, how is suicide affecting this community, especially with the people that uh, roll out? I mean, is there a, a number? I mean, like what's the statistics of this? I mean, is this really as big a problem as we're being led to believe? Um, I believe it is, yes. <laughs> so veterans are actually 1.5 times, uh, have a higher rate of suicide than non-veterans in the U.S., um, and then there are some disparities that exist within that group, such as, you know, females are actually two times higher than female populations in the U.S. Um, within, there are some states that rank even higher than the national average. Um, so there's, we, as in Arizona, um, are one of the states that rank among the highest. And we have a rate of about 45 per 100,000. Uh, suicides, and the national average is 31 per 100,000. But yeah, the disparity does exist between veterans and non-veterans. So, is there also a larger um, like a, I remember reading up on some of the suicide ratio or uh, numbers, and there was a higher mm -hmm. rate of males to, than suicide for males than there were for females. Is that still pretty accurate? There's a higher number of. Um, total number of suicides, males to females, but the rate within the female population is higher. Because there's obviously less. Yes. Yeah, yeah so it's similar to um, some other disparities, you know, ages 55 to 74, some more Vietnam era veterans. They actually make up the largest population of veterans and they have the largest total number of veteran suicides. Um, however, we see the highest rate of suicide within the 18 to 34 age range. Some more um, Afghanistan, Iraq, more veterans. 
And uh, is there uh, like a target time, like for when they come back? Like obviously they they serve, they come back, they get out of the military. Is there like a window that is by far the uh, like the greatest predictor of something to happen? Like if they can make it past two years, they tend to be okay. But it's really within that first eighteen months where they're you know having the most amount of problems. Um, I haven't necessarily seen anything. I, I, we do know that transition is an issue. Um, However, I haven't really seen anything saying that, okay, within this time frame, um, because I know even at the older ages, some of the issues why they're seeing it later on in life as well is those individuals become at retirement age, so they no longer have distractors. Um, They also start to experience loss of family members, loss of friends, you know, their physical health starts to decline. Um, And so at that time, some, you know, decide to confront maybe their wartime memories. Um, And usually that older group also tends to reject treatment, um, which is kind of seen throughout the veteran populations due to stigmas. Well, it feels like uh, just doing Spansway research, it it feels like the PTSD and, and the way this has been classified has really changed over the last, let's say, 100 years. You know, those guys came back and I think they called it like, uh, you know, there was like trench. uh, I I forgot what it was in World War One, but there was like a name for it in World War One. Then World War Two, they were shell shocked. And then it was, you know, this and it was kind of this like the stigma attached to each generation. And then now it's PTSD. And before it was like, well, you you know, shouldn't be a wimp. You can just tough this stuff out. And I think now we're realizing that it's a lot more severe than than what we originally probably tried to sweep underneath the rug. Yeah. And, you know, that's cited within almost all the populations and even conversations that we've had with some veterans, just, you know, trying to get some insights um, as being a huge barrier to care. And what kind of you're administering a lot of surveys now, what kind of barriers are you questioning and reaching out for to see if any of your thoughts or hypotheses are correct? Um, what type of barriers or reasons within your, your survey, we're asking these questions, identifying exactly who they are. And then, okay. Are Are, you, are you using the surveys to like as predictors or are you using it more to like understand the scope of what the problem is to try to potentially get in front of it? Yeah, we're using it more to understand the scope and draw associations between, maybe some um, social determinants of health and um, suicidality. So those that experience thoughts of suicide or, you know, have made attempts at suicide, what other issues are they having in their life or what type of crisis do they um, go through that would, you know, lead to them having those type of thoughts or actions. So it's more gathering information to understand so that we can create more targeted approaches Um, some things that we see highly associated with um, suicidality is, you know, mental health, depression, um, social isolation uh, is another big one, Um, homelessness, um, what else? Um, I I think that was just transition to. Are there buckets? Like I, um, like 
we've obviously done a lot of work with the U.S. military, and whenever I've discussed mm-hmm. with them about you know PTSD and some of these issues, uh, it tends to kind of bucket, and, and maybe it doesn't, but like almost with like rank and education. So they felt that like the more trained, more educated a person was, the less they would exhibit these problems, or maybe they just had better tools to deal with it or more support at that point. And the, the bigger problems they saw were the people that didn't necessarily have as much exposure, training, or experience, and those people were more at, at risk. Is that what you're kind of seeing within the surveys? Or really, I mean, um, the, the thing I love about sending out surveys is we're always amazed by what we get back. Yeah, I, well, and our survey is so big. <laughs> There's so many things it's that dense. we asked about. <laughs> yeah, it is very intense. Um, and so... I, that's not something that we've necessarily associated. Um, we're talking like um, education as far as um, like resiliency training, that type of stuff. Or are you yeah. talking about yeah. like levels well, of education? Like, uh, like, like the, of- like when they leave the military, they have a very specific skill set that has prepared mm-hmm. them to reacclimate and get a job in the outside world. Like for mm-hmm. example, um, when we were down at Fort Bragg working with the 18th Airborne Corps, uh, one of the guys who really had a funny sense of humor and was just like uh, like somebody who has that kind of dark, funny sense of humor I tend to gravitate towards. And the guy was a, uh, like a high-risk generator mechanic. So like the, mm-hmm. big, like the big missile batteries that shoot from the generators, his job would be able to jump in and then fix those. And I asked him, mm-hmm. I'm like, is, uh, is that a skill that's applicable? I mean, is that something that you can port out after? And he was like, 100%. He's like, the fact that I have the ability to be able to go, go and diagnose these, mar- these large electrical systems in a stressful situation really puts me in a very, very small category of people that do this. And I'm already looking at like four or five different jobs when I exit the military. I would have never got right. that training if I hadn't entered the military. So I asked him, like, what does military life look like? He's like, oh, way better. Food, and I don't have to do this stuff. So like he mm-hmm. was looking forward to like his next point in life. And uh, whereas some of the other guys we encountered there was like almost this long, like a a little bit of hopelessness where I don't know what I'm going to do after this. I don't feel that I'm trained to do anything. Right. Yeah. We see, we do see that with the career services kind of branch of ACMF. Um, And one of the things that I know that they talk to those individuals that are kind of feeling hopeless about, they're like, Oh, I don't, you know, I can point and shoot a gun. You know, I don't really have any other skills. And it's like, no, you do have skills. You know, you know how to be a leader, you know, how to, um, you know, work as team in teams, you know, so they start to go through and point out all these other skills that they might've learned that they don't really realize would help them in the job market. Um, and then also help them uh, get a job as well. It feels so like too, uh, some of the law or some of the issues with anxiety and, and some of the problems is that idea of like, what am I going to do after this? You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the U.S. military has provided me, you know, food, home, shelter, you know, uh, purpose, mission, uniform, all these factors to help me identify. And now all of a sudden I get thrown out or not thrown out, but like I exit this situation. And now instead of having this like band of brothers where we're all wearing similar you know, clothing and going the same place, now I'm a, kind of a solo operator uh, left mm-hmm. up to my own devices. So, um, I mean, it almost feels like the U.S. military should be preparing these guys while they're in service for the day that they're no longer in service, which is the same thing we saw with the NFL, where you know NFL players stop playing in the NFL and all of a sudden they, they exhibit these same issues 
because right. they're not prepared to go out and actually lead a normal life and work a normal job and reacclimate outside their you know professional uh, professional athlete status. Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, that's one of the biggest things that some of the veterans we've discussed these things with, you know, have cited. And so that is actually one of our agendas is, um, and we did just apply for a grant to start working with current military as well, but we have a, um, they're called navigators that work with the Be Connected program that do resource matching and all that type of stuff. We just um, got one placed at Luke Air Force Base. And so they're actually going to start doing some education and training and start running some of those initiatives a year before um, end of service. Well, hopefully so, that helps. What, what yeah. did suicide prevention for the veteran population look like before you started taking on these tasks? Did you do any research what they did attempt? Yes. Um, so <laughs> historically, suicide uh, prevention efforts were more uh, crisis intervention related. So at the time of crisis is when it was being addressed or, you know, utilizing the crisis line. And I think that um, we are starting to see a shift um, in this model. Uh, we have to remember that, you know, although those things are effective, crisis intervention is not prevention. Um, and so we need to kind of shift from treatment to prevention, much like we're seeing discussed in healthcare today, right? Switching over to more preventative type models. Um, I think that we also need to implement more upstream approaches to reach someone uh, before they get to the point of crisis. Um, because in reality, there's only so many of them that are gonna pick up the phone and call a friend or call a crisis line uh, when they're at that point. Um, and we see also from the statistics that, um, let's say, you know, there's 20 veterans um, suicides per day. Well, 14 of those 20 were not under VA care. So although we're trying to have run programs through the VA and have this, you know, um, crisis prevention type efforts, we're not reaching those that are not engaging with healthcare services. And so really this is a national public health issue. Um, and there are some initiatives that have come about um, that have aided in kind of this new transition for upstream approaches. Um, so if you've heard of the president's prevents uh, framework, you guys heard of that mm -hmm. that kind of came out. Explain that for our listeners. Okay, yeah. So PREVENTS stands for the President's Roadmap to Empower Veterans um, to End the National Tragedy of Suicide. Um, so President Trump actually uh, signed an executive order in 2018 um, to support our veterans during their transition from uniformed service to civilian life. Um, so this initiative has really elevated some of the shift that I've seen is it's elevated the national conversation really around mental health and suicide. Um, and you'll start to see, you know, I see on social media now people are posting things about mental health and, you know, hey, if you need anything, reach out. So we have all of these 
um, larger scale approaches going on, but I think bringing awareness and starting those conversations is a good step in the right direction. Um, this initiative has also provided funding for more um, mental health and suicide uh, programming. So the goal, part of the goal of this prevents model was to um, build on, you know, existing best practices, figure out what those best practices are, and then expand upon them by creating programs within communities. So it's really more of what's considered like a collective impact model. So bringing um, key stakeholders together uh, that now have a common agenda, um, you know, they share measurement, um, they're working towards uh, mutual um, reinforcing activities. Uh, there's continuous communication between different, you know, departments within states and across the country that didn't occur before. Um, and really at the state level, we're able to build out teams to make some of these initiatives happen. So there's a governor's challenge and also a mayor's challenge uh, that have come about. So the governor's challenge um, to prevent uh, suicide among service members, veterans, and their families started out by engaging um, seven states, but now it's up to 27 states, I believe, that are participating in these efforts. And so they get um, resources to take a public health approach within their own state. Um, and then there's also a mayor's challenge that's looking at 20, well, it started with 22 communities. I believe it's down to 18 communities now that are also actively participating in the governor's challenge and working towards um, some public health initiatives and more programs to prevent veteran suicide in their communities. Do those challenges look like 5Ks or any physical <laughs> events, anything connected to movement, team, and exercise? So not yet. Um, <laughs> do they involve? We do know that exercise. What's that? I was going to internal queuing. Yeah, is there any internal queuing in that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll, <laughs> we'll see when we get there. Um, definitely with uh, some of our adaptive um, individuals, we'll bring that about. Um, but yeah, I mean, exercise. Those are, are going to be some of the interventions that that you'll see and some of the services that are going to be offered through these multi-pronged approaches. Um, it's just how do we assess a community to see what resources are available for them to provide some type of, you know, exercise. There are, you know, like the groups, uh, Red, White, and Blue, they do, you know, the runs. Mm -hmm. I, they're pretty big here in Arizona and, you know, they always end at a brewery, so they get pretty popular. <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's a good strategy. Um, you mentioned the VA a little bit. How was the mm -hmm. VA involved in this? I mean, it seemed like we've been, man, I can think of at least six or seven different occasions, somebody different from the VA has reached out to us about doing some things. And it always feels like just a black hole of bureaucracy that we could never navigate. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I can't even fathom, you know, the, how that whole thing kind of operates. But is that, I mean, is it something where they're providing the care or is it because this... I guess this uh, this government agency is just so laborious to deal with that these guys just don't just don't get involved. Um, they're providing care, but in their own way, they are willing to 
work with us and they are involved in a, a lot of the efforts. They did share kind of what they believe are best practices for suicide prevention. Um, it's always interesting to talk about the VA, you know, about like 10 to 15 years ago, they didn't necessarily have a great reputation, right? Didn't engage in the community very much, um, but they, there was the Mission Act that was passed in um, 2018. And it was for the VA to start establishing community care programs. Um, so before, again, they were reaching out to those that were receiving care for them and sending them caring messages and things like that. Um, but now they also have funding to give to community partners um, to actually build programs. So we actually work with the VA a lot um, and they're one of our key stakeholders that I think for suicide prevention efforts in every state, you need to involve the VA. Um, they've actually been pretty helpful. We're waiting on some data from them right now. There's always those data issues, which we're trying to, you know, bypass getting some de-identified data from them. Um, but I mean, they've, uh, helped us out with a lot of our efforts. So uh, they've even developed a national strategy, again, to prevent veteran suicide, um, which was a framework that they came up with, so. They're in my town, Rachel, Dripping Springs, they're building a whole new one, uh, VA, off of 290. Oh, nice. So that we just mm -hmm. voted on that, and then they stakes in the ground, a bunch of flags out front. Looks pretty cool. Did you vote against it? You voted of for it? Of course not. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> uh, so we, we've talked nationally. Let's focus on the, the project that you have at hand. What are your main objectives that you're hoping to accomplish with the people working with you? Well, let's see. So we have, always have a lot going on with our, our projects, but they're mainly serving, you know, this, this larger scope of upstream suicide prevention. Our three main obje objectives are right now to build what's called a, a vulnerability index um, and then build a state scorecard and then a roadmap to share with states uh, for them to be able to implement their own programs. So this started out as research kind of funded by uh, the CDC Foundation. And the vulnerability index is really just us using uh, data and other research methods uh, to really understand um, and profile kind of segments within our own population. So that's part of our survey efforts have allowed us to identify those that are at higher risk. Um, we've also done what's called a high risk report. So looking at some of the disparities within the veteran population and some things that make them at higher risk for suicidality. Uh, we've taken that information, broken it down geographically, uh, created these maps and really hotspotted the community. So, okay, these zip codes have the highest number of veterans. Okay, now within those zip codes, how many of those veterans have, you know, a disability? Um, what are the age groups of these veterans? Because we also know that age group is a risk factor. Um, what's their occupation, their race, their ethnicity? Um, and all of this information is from our survey. 
um, Arizona Department of Health Services, uh, Arizona um, Violent Death Reporting Systems, and then also the U.S. Census. So by gathering and kind of hotspotting these communities, it'll allow us to go in and kind of do some strategic planning around um, creating a needs assessment for those communities. So what's available to veterans in these areas? Um, how can we better serve veterans in these areas? Because we kind of have a profile of what a veteran that lives in that you know hot-spotted area looks like. So it's really just to get more targeted approaches and to engage them in areas that they live and thrive in versus waiting for them to you know, engage themselves in healthcare. How do you guys reach out? I mean, um, I mean, is it, uh, is it phone calls? Is it emails? Is it, uh, you know, letters through the mail, people knock on the door, like a traveling salesman. I'm just wondering how you go out into the community. I mean, after you assess them, there has to be an outreach program. Um, well, before there was some outreach in person being done. Um, and when we get to, so we've done all of our hot spotting and high risk reporting, Right now is where we're at the point of doing community assessment. So we'll reach out to places in the community that maybe veterans gather. So we'll talk to, you know, um, I guess leadership in the community to see if they have an idea of that information. Then we'll actually either, um, well, it's, it's difficult in the COVID world now, um, but <laughs> the plan was to send somebody out to those communities to really do some grassroots efforts and, you know, talk to people within that community and at those places that um, maybe veterans gather so that they can, you know, hear firsthand kind of what the needs are um, for veterans in that area. So a lot of it is email and phone calls right now, but the plan is to send someone to those actual communities. When, when COVID hit, did that spark any alarms? thinking of all the things that you highlighted as possible risk factors that's almost forced upon people during mm -hmm. the COVID times. Did, would, did that put some smoke in your team's butt to, to get this off the ground? Yeah, it, <laughs> in, you know, it, at the same time, it also um, made us change direction a little bit and we had to provide other types of services. So, you know, ACES, ACMF applied for grants for a transportation project. Um, so, you know, even just transporting people food because uh, there was some food insecurity issues, um, taking them to their, you know, healthcare appointments because now they no longer had a ride from someone due to, you know, insecurity of, you know, catching COVID and things like that. So we had to kind of shift our focus and make sure, and it, mainly that was within the rural communities um, and also it made us kind of worry like, okay, what, how is this going to affect and change, you know, suicide rates and other issues and times of crisis? Our, um, Be Connected support line did increase the amount of calls that it got. Um, and the, the support line is not a crisis line. So I just want to clarify, you know, you can call um, as a, a service member veteran or even a family member. And if there's anything that you need, basically they resource match for you. So they've had calls where, you know, this uh, gentleman's tree was going to fall on his house. So they got somebody to come out and cut the tree down. Um, another guy, um, he couldn't get to his medical 
appointments because he had parakeets and apparently he had to watch them all the time, couldn't leave them. So they actually found somebody to go over and, you know, <laughs> I guess babysit his parakeets. I don't know. <laughs> so that he could make it to um, his medical appointments. So there's a lot of things that um, they help with and basically get you the right resources at the right time to prevent you from being stressed or experience crisis in any way. Did, um, um, did the suicide, I mean, I, uh, I think I read, I mean, I've read so much conflicting information about like mm-hmm. suicide rates did go up during COVID for the general population. Right. Were, were those numbers reflected? Did those like, if it's uh you know, one and a half times if a veteran's one and a half times more likely to kill suicide, I mean, did that number stay constant with what we saw a rise in suicide just a, among the general population here in the United States? So we don't necessarily know that yet. One of the issues that um, we're having with these suicide prevention efforts is getting real-time data. Um, there's not a lot of data sharing that's going on, so it's difficult to get. Um, also, they don't know how accurate it is due to population changes as well, kind of the numbers that they're starting to see. Um, and it is, we are going to have some COVID-related questions on our, our new survey, but yeah, we don't know yet necessarily how our veteran suicides have been affected by COVID. Yeah, we don't have but yeah, I've also data reporting. In that general population has gone up. So Yeah, I always wonder how they come up with all these all these numbers in real time. It's kinda like on the COVID stuff. I mean what they tested it for thirty days and allegedly had forty thousand um, tests done and were able to report data to be able to get it through. So and I remember thinking like, wow, I mean that data reporting's gotta be pretty pretty on spot. I don't get it. Yeah, the, <laughs> we see some conflicted stuff too. That's why we have to try and use, you know, multiple sources to get the best information that we can. Are the surveys by far the, I mean, uh, I mean, we've done everything from like heart rate variability, I mean, to every type of metric we have for performance. And we found mm-hmm. that actually readiness surveys are by far the most accurate that we've found. Have you found that the surveys are by far the most accurate? People tend to be more honest in survey than they would if you called them on the phone and engaged them? Um, so we actually just had a conversation about this yesterday. We're getting our female veteran paper ready or, um, to submit for publication. And we were looking at the data um, and with the thoughts of suicide questions, um, a majority of individuals that took the survey answered those questions. So we were actually surprised by that um, with the female population. But when we look at the, we had, you know, over 11,000, you know, survey respondents and there's quite a few people that skipped those type of questions. Um, and not enough to, you know, just validate what we found or anything, but it's just, it, that's, one of the issues with survey research, right? We can't make them answer things. Um, so, but yeah, maybe they're more more honest. It is um, that you know we don't gather any personal information on them, so it's anonymous. How many? Um, if you got eleven thousand back, how many did you send out? Um, let's see, probably. Close to 18,000. Oh, wow. 
pretty good. That's really good. I mean, 60 some mm -hmm. percent. Yeah, uh, we that, have. That's better than we get on our surveys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we have a little over five hundred thousand just veterans within our state, and it did it, you know it gets sent out to um, veterans, um, service members, and family members as well. And you said the next one's going to have some COVID-related questions. How often mm -hmm. are you updating this? And when you do send it out, the updated version is it a new group and improve it, or is it? just hammering the same folks? Um, so similar questions. It's just, we have to, there's some that weren't so clear, like, okay, in the last 30 days, you know, have you had um, lots of suicide or have you felt depressed or something? And people will put like 60 days. It's like, well, that wasn't really an option, you know? So we have to change questions like that, that maybe we got some not so clear answers on. Um, we have to change things like we had a few people fill it out that didn't live in Arizona somehow. I don't know how that happened. So now if you click that you don't live in Arizona, then it'll automatically take you to the end of the survey. So we don't have to, you know, clean those people out of the data at the end. Um, just rewording of a couple questions, adding to um, uh, genders. Um, so we just have male and female. We need to add, you know, transgender category. Um, and then, yeah, this year we're going to have to add some COVID related questions. So there was a survey run in 2017, one run in 2019, and now this will be the third time this survey has been run in um, 2021. So we'll push it out probably by July 1st. Um, and it will, the VA will share it with all of the individuals that, you know, are seeking VA healthcare. Um, but we also go and push it out to different, um, you know, veteran organizations within the community. Um, we're going to take it to, we have a paper-based survey as well for those that don't have use of electronics. Um, we collect on incarcerated veterans, homeless veterans. So there's different sites kind of that we've targeted. And then again, taking some paper ones out to those communities that we've hotspotted to kind of gather more information on them as well. So try and do a widespread approach, but we'll see, see what we get back this time. Any thoughts on what your prevention campaigns or initiatives, once you get the data in place, going to look like? Are you kicking around any ideas in the office? Um, well, part of gathering some of the ideas is kind of the second uh, focus of the main project, which is creating that state scorecard. Um, and really that's for states to be able to assess their own communities and their progress with developing um, and implementing veteran suicide prevention programs. And so what we've done thus far is kind of gathered information from seven key states that are participating in that governor's and mayor's challenge. Uh, we've interviewed some key stakeholders and leaders in those states on what those efforts are. So it's really what we're trying to do is gather some best practices on programs that have been developed and that they've found successful in other states so that we can kind of put together, okay, what are we doing here in Arizona? You know, what are these other states doing? Um, and then help them also figure out ways to 
do some resource navigation. So look at, okay, what do they have available? Um, is there gaps in the services that they provide? Um, and then how do they actually coordinate um, everybody together to perform some of the services that are suggested? So as far as our targeted approaches, I mean, we probably have 20 different projects going on right now um, serving <laughs> our, you know, veteran communities. So be connected is kind of a model that will be shared with all the other states for them to have this, uh, you know, these navigators. Um, they Again, they also do the military culture training, which is important for communities um, and anybody that's being around veterans to really learn about or service members. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not sure kind of on a, on a grand scale what all the best practices are going to be. Uh, I see what we've kind of had some successes with uh, in our state um, with some services that have been provided like the career services type stuff. Um, the transportation project, you know, much more of these rural veterans are being able to have access to care, which we've seen as a barrier. So do you get to see. ask your, your student veterans, Hey, what do you think of this idea and get some feedback from the, almost the customer. I don't know what to specifically call them, but the, mm -hmm. the targeted audience. audience. Yeah. Target audience. Yeah. Um, and we have, so, you know, I talked to my student veterans, we get on all sorts of interesting conversations. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, typically I'm teaching them in, you know, resistance training, strength conditioning type courses, you know, so they start, you know, we get on tangents of, you know, is there resistance training or some type of strength conditioning that aids with pain or changes pain perceptions, you know, so we start getting down all these different rabbit holes that become quite interesting, but yeah, always look for their feedback. We also have kind of some think tanks that uh, we put together and we meet with you know, we bring in um, veterans to share their ideas and we always have um, veterans on various teams kind of looking over all of our program implementation and our program evaluations. We show them that as well. And okay, what do they also think that we need to improve upon and make better? So yeah, there's a lot of veterans within our communities that are involved in all these processes. What are the other states doing? I mean, um, you know, we've talked about Arizona and trying to create this scorecard, but are there any other states that are kind of leading the forefront or is it Arizona is really the one that's kind of forging ahead? Um, there are, I mean, other states are making efforts. Uh, there, I'd say that of the seven that we interviewed, um, they are kind of in the forming phase. So they have um, put together, okay, these are the, key stakeholders we need to engage in these efforts. A lot of them are using that um, prevention model that was developed by the VA to try and implement things. Um, but they've kind of gotten stuck. So, you know, suicide we know is a very complex issue. Um, so there's, you know, multiple factors that could lead to action. So solving some of those issues has almost become overwhelming for some states as they just begin to start having these type of conversations. Um, and although, you know, prevention strategies have been increasing over the past couple of years, um, 
collaboration, funding, and just organizing some of these projects um, have kind of been an obstacle to or a challenge to act. So we've had some states mentioned that they just don't have the headcount or the resources to put action behind some of their ideas. Um, and it's not until recently that they've been able to apply for funding due to, you know, prevents and some other funding that's been made available for them to start working on initiatives. So I don't want to say like, hey, yeah, we're the best state here in Arizona, but um, it's just that we started the efforts a little bit sooner than what we're seeing in other states. So they are trying and starting to, you know, put together partnerships and work on things. But you said there were over 500,000 veterans just in Arizona. What's a total headcount here in the United States of veterans? I mean, it's got to be pretty big. I mean, if you look at everything from Vietnam um, up until like Desert Storm and now Afghanistan, we've been in war for 20 years. I'm just wondering what that headcount is. Yes, um, I I know that number. Um, gosh, it was a few million. <laughs> Obviously, I'm trying to think of, remember if it was like, well, if Arizona has 500,000, I mean, is Arizona one of the largest states of, uh, of veterans? We are one of the largest states with veterans, yes. I mean, you've got to think. Why? Arizona, California, Texas. Yeah. Well, I Florida. Mean, places that have open carry. Right. You know, <laughs> except California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just, I mean, in, in Arizona, you know, we do have a very large, um, I guess, veteran population. But, yeah, 68% of the suicides in Arizona are veterans. So, pretty big issue here. We are one of the... What's the total number of suicides a year in Arizona, just of everybody? Total number per year. Mm. I, I can't remember if it was total veterans or females was like 638 or something around that number. Can't remember. There's so many statistics that are going through my head. So yeah, I get barraged. I mean, yeah, it's, it, so. it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a real problem. I mean, you know, even one is too many feels right. like, and, and uh, the interesting thing about suicide is it's 100% preventable. I, I would imagine. Exactly. Um, I wonder, um, are drugs and alcohol a big play in this? I mean, is it something where they go back and, you know, all of a sudden it kind of follows the same story? Like, hey, they, they got injured. And I only know this because I, I ran into a guy, actually, um, the guy I got the uh, ambulance truck from was a, was a veteran and, and had taken a shot in the shoulder, like destroyed his clavicle, got hooked on painkillers, you know, mm -hmm. went from, you know, then the VA cut him off and then got into illegal drugs. And, then, you know, and then it was, you know, fighting his way back and, you know, we had a bunch of conversations about it, but it was just kind of an interesting thing where, you know, he was like, you know, uh, you can kind of see once people start kind of going down that road where all of a sudden now it's like drugs and alcohol, suicide ends up being one of the major outcomes. They either get help or they kill themselves. And I was like, oh, shit, that's pretty finite. I mean, that's so I mean, is, is that something that's probably pretty accurate? Yeah, and unfortunately, um, our, in our National Guard here. Uh, has done a great job. They've set up, you know, a, a counter drug task force that they've been working through some initiatives with. But 
yeah, I mean, one of the more recent stories, you know, a gentleman, you know, committed suicide, got out, um, was having issues with transition, then started having marital issues, you know, ends up divorced, then gets into drugs, um, and then, yeah, ends up committing suicide. So um, it is, we're, we've seen from our research that um, opioid use is high um, and disability is also, you know, a risk factor for suicide or there's high associations between disability and, and um, suicide. And those that were, had some sort of disability status had higher use of um, drugs and it was more um, poly drug use that was linked to suicide than just anyone. Mm. So, so when they start combining stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, alcohol and, you know, tobacco were also in that category. So it could have been that they were drinking and taking painkillers or something like that. So have, have they looked at any, um, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm sure they haven't gone this deep into it, but like CTE and some of the stuff we see within professional sports, is that becoming, uh, you know, entering the conversation that maybe from the concussions or maybe, I don't know, people that are near fire have some form of percussion, uh, you know, hitting the skull, that becomes kind of an issue. I'm just wondering if like, it's just not as cut and dry as a, Hey, uh, you know, I had a, I had a pretty cool life. Now I no longer have that. And I have a trouble time reacclimating into society. I start drinking and doing drugs. And next thing I know it all ends. But I wonder if there's some things that happened into the course of, you know, obviously their military career that are kind of exasperating it or maybe pushing them towards that. Um, yeah, I would imagine I have read some stuff on that and it's seen more, they're actually seeing more, um, mental health and head injuries in the 18 to 34 age category, which is at a heightened risk. Um, and they've seen that those things lead to anxiety, depression. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of a, a rabbit hole there. Uh, so what's the end game? I mean, you're going to uh, mine all this data. You're going to send out all this. And I, I know Tex talked about, um, you know, programs, or whatever. But, like, what's the end game behind all this? I mean, is it just you're kind of in the data collection phase and then you'll hand it off to somebody? Or is it something where you're going to kind of take this a step past where you're at? Um, no, I plan to. So the grant originally was just for a year, but. We've expanded, expanded the scope of work. Um, also, got some new grants to complete kind of this line of work. So I'll see the project through completion of, you know, the vulnerability index, um, the state scorecard, all the way through to when we, you know, provide these roadmaps to states, um, you know, to develop their own prevention efforts. The Goal is to um, transition some of these programming um, models and prevention efforts into current active duty military. So, like I mentioned, we do have one person at Luke Air Force Base now, um, and the military is also starting to fund. So there's some DOD and subcontracted grants out there for prevention efforts. Um, so we've applied for some of those, uh, even though we're already kind of moving in that direction, um, just to expand it within the military community. Has 
having the veteran students in place change your now education or leaning towards during your classes? So that pain management jumps out to me because we, we've had a lot of pain experts onto the mm -hmm. podcast and that often changes how we communicate movement when we're even speaking to, to kids or people just getting into exercise as having these veterans with different experiences, like real life experiences, change the way you teach your strength and conditioning courses? Um, I don't know that it's changed the way that um, I've teached, except for I have added in more tactical strength and conditioning. Um, pieces to some of my courses and even when I cover programming, go over that a little bit more because uh, that always spikes their interest uh, and is relatable to them. So trying to add in more, you know, diverse content. Um, also some of the, um, like I mentioned, community partners that I'll engage with to bring in for experiential learning. Um, also have started projects with some of these veteran students. One, he recently graduated um, and actually he is working at the Naval Air Force Base down in Kingsville. Um, so down by Corpus Christi. Uh, yeah. So he, yeah, <laughs> I have about three veteran students now that um, have graduated in the past uh, year or two that are working in the tactical arena. So pretty excited for them. I know they went through a lot of interviews and <laughs> there's been a lot going uh, on there. But um, he was working on a project through, we have this program called Devils Adapt and he was working with amputees and um, bringing them in for strength and conditioning sessions. And so we started to expand that project a little bit and seek out um, the veteran population that were also, you know, um, had prosthetics and whatnot and had kind of some specialized needs as far as strength and conditioning. And our goal was to um, expand on that program a little bit more. So right now, due to COVID, things have kind of slowed down in that realm and we're not really allowed to bring in individuals to campus like that. So I, I love that I have this other research going on and it, it's very meaningful to me, uh, the work that I'm doing. And it's kind of at the right time because a lot of my strength and conditioning research is on hold. Like one of the studies I was discussing with you guys last time, I'd finished one I just need the time to write it up. And then another one was, you know, halfway done. So now I have half of my subjects collected without wearing masks. I can't bring in the other half and have them now wearing a mask. And ASU are, even though IRB might approve your protocol, um, the College of Health Solutions, we have additional measures in place. So if somebody's lifting above 85% rep max, technically that's considered high intensity. And so they have to be wearing a mask, a face shield, goggles, a robe, gloves, you know, so just the whole nine yards of PPE. So it's. Wait, 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 <laughs> wait, wait, explain this to me. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Mm -hmm. So if somebody lifts over 85%, they have to wear a gown, a mask, mm -hmm. a face shield, respirator. Right. For what purpose? Um, 
it's just our lab protocols. So your lab protocols. Mm-hmm. So it, like yep. a, like a COVID protocol, like they're afraid that they're mm-hmm. going to get COVID and you're more at risk for getting COVID if you're doing something that's high intensity. Right. Cause maybe you expel more, I don't know, spit or snot or who knows what else happens is what they explained when you're doing high intensity activity. Aren't these so we have no VO2 max testing. The person has to be in the room by themselves when they like take the mask off or put the mask on Aren't they and COVID then there's tested? actually like a shower curtain. What's that? Aren't they COVID tested before they come into the study? Yeah. And we get randomly COVID tested all the time too. So. Man, I don't understand. Like <laughs> I, <laughs> that is, it sounds like a great time to study those oxygen masks. Oh, you mean the, uh, like the, uh, right. elevation. Yeah. <laughs> elevation. Yeah, those do absolutely nothing. Yeah. No, they do the opposite. You should wear them when you're resting. Uh, no, you should, Theoretically, if you rest, you should be in some uh, hypoxic state at rest, like the idea of like Mm -hmm. living at altitude or in a hypoxic chamber, and then you would train at low altitude so you had greater capacity. So the age-old ideal was like live at sea level, train at elevation, and then they they flip-flop that, but those elevation masks don't do anything. Great marketing. No, dude, they look badass. No, they don't. It's the opposite of the great marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bain that, did wonders for that industry. I uh, like. I'm I'm so confused by some of these COVID protocols and like some of this stuff. But I, I I guess it's all about reducing liability. If they make it like so arduous, nobody's going to do it, and then it just reduces their liability because they don't have to worry about it. Right. Yeah. So I mean, classes have changed. My our partnership with the Army. They're training a, a National Guard um, unit now because they can't come in either. I mean, we have to key into the building and then show them that we did our daily health check for us to even get in. So, you know, there's no guests of any sort. I mean, students barely come in. So, you know, it's just very challenging to do anything right now. Is that that affecting higher education? I mean, is it hard to, I mean, um, you know, with the rates of higher education in terms of pricing and whatnot, I mean, people are paying you know, pretty high amounts of money to be able to go into these programs and not actually mm-hmm. being able to physically show up in person and learn. Uh, is, is that yeah. decreasing numbers and detrimental to higher education? I, I believe so. Um, most of my courses are practical in nature. And, and so, you know, you're going to learn how to be a coach and coach somebody through a squat exercise by watching a video. You know, um, our students are allowed to come in but they're or they're allowed to stay online it is up to them whether or not they want to show up so um like i was mentioning to text earlier there's only been about four max that have shown up and in our labs we're only allowed to have eight so based on class sizes i have to have students you know um with a last name of you know a through L you're coming in on this day and you know, so forth. So I have different groups that are rotating. So now it takes me three class periods to teach something that used to take me one class period. Cause I would have the whole class in there. And so there has been labs and content cut from some of our courses because, you know, we try to combine it in the best way possible and be creative and figure out ways to still provide the same learning experience. But bottom line is some of their, you know, practical experience is gone away. 
and same with internship opportunities. They, for internship, they were basically reading research articles and doing write-ups. So um, with our advanced courses, you know, happening, really preparing them to be strength coaches and get that experiential learning their senior year, those that are graduating, you know, this year, um, you know, I, I kind of feel bad for them going out trying to get a job uh, because there's probably some skills that they might lack. Um, is there is there an end in sight or is this kind of the, uh, the way it's going to be going forward or is there, you know, a protocol like, hey, you know, this is how it is now, but it's not going to be like this going forward or is this kind of what we're we're in for? Yeah, we've already – so – that being at ASU, we, when COVID started, we did stop in person from like March through May. So that end of that spring semester last year, but in the fall, we did this sync format. So we all had to go to these technology trainings over the summer. They equipped all of our classrooms with technology, but it's just that the students chose not to come in, right? So it is up to them. In the fall this year, our um, president has already announced we're back to in-person learning. Oh, nice. So, yes. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. For sure. The I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the, going back to what you mentioned earlier with um, amputee training, what were some principles <laughs> or some guidelines in line with normal strength and conditioning that you would teach your students for I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I imagine our listeners are as well. So for training that population? Yeah. What kind of things to consider when dealing with adaptable athletes? Um, so there's a few different levels of that. Um, one of the things that my master's student did is actually create a training manual for those that were going to be training those populations in the future and some things that were addressed in there were um, the environment that you're creating for that athlete. So um, typically, you know, let's say the, the individual dropped a weight or the medicine ball was on the ground. He said, make sure that you're not going and picking it up for them, right? Make them still work and do things so that it's not like, you're coddling them or giving them too much, um, I guess, attention or treating them like they have a disability, right? So make them still still do the work and feel like they're capable of doing the work. Um, everything that they do does require a little bit more energy um, because they have to use more mechanical work um, for them to accomplish tasks. So just be aware of that and then also um, uh, the biomechanics of their movement, um, the equipment setup. Uh, there's not a lot of machines that um, are available, let's say, for somebody that's in a wheelchair, right, with an amputation. Um, and what else? Um, or even, like, if you've seen the, what's the guy on the Seahawks that is um, oh, deep linebacker. Oh, he's missing his hand. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I can't remember his name. Oh, it's bothering me. Hold on. 
Yeah. Yes. So they've got some selectorized equipment now for him to be able to train, you know, in the weight room. I'm not sure if this year he's still in the team or whatnot. I haven't really followed that, but I've seen, you know, videos of him working out and everything. Um, and, you know, we wrote an article, we were going to submit it to SCJ. Um, and then I saw one on the cover, like the very next month, you know, training, you know, amputees. Um, but yeah, I just realized that you might have to be adaptable for them as well to make everything kind of fit for them. And everything does require a little bit more effort, but you should train them like a normal individual. Yeah. When, whenever we've worked with, um, and I, I used to run into this when we taught the seminar uh, for CrossFit, um, people would come and they were missing limbs or they had some form of, you know, physical uh, little, uh, disability. And it was just a matter of figuring out what they could do more so than what they couldn't. And whenever mm-hmm. people ask me about it, I'm like, it just, you have to kind of flip the mindset instead of looking at the person and being like, well, they can't do this. They can't do this. Let's start right. with what you can do. You know, here's our, you know, primal movement, step squat lunge here, what, what it looks like. How does your prosthetic work? I mean, uh, one mm-hmm. of the guys we were actually teaching to squat, the problem was that he didn't have any, his ankle was fixed. So mm-hmm. he was a below the knee amputee. So he had his knee, but the joint within the ankle had no mobility. So for him to squat, it had to like roll up and it got to a point where it just got locked. And I remember being like, all right, well, let's figure out how you can do these movements in such a way that works around, you know, the, I guess you could say like the engineering limitations of your prosthetics. And so mm-hmm. just being able to figure out, I mean, obviously if somebody's missing a hand, they can still pull, uh, you know, to be able to fly across. I mean, there's two ways to train the chest. You just don't have to push. I had a, I had a lady at the, when we were at the CrossFit gym, um, one of my clients was missing a hand. She was born without a hand. And so mm-hmm. she had no, uh, like no feeling within, I guess you could say her nub. And, uh, she did pull-ups. She could do push-ups. I, fa- I fashioned her almost like a hook that attached to her wrist and her elbow. And she could, she had like 10 dead hang pull-ups. She had push-ups. She could actually balance the bar on the nub and do push presses. So it was pretty amazing the things that she ended up being able to figure out we could do with just a little bit of modification, a little bit of creativity. And also it helped have, you know, a guy like Roger. We had a, a pretty dope fabricator that trained with us who always had some really amazing ideas on how to adjust things. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of like, hey, what can she do? How can we adjust the equipment? And then, you know, we're limited by our creativity. Right. Yeah, that stuff's always pretty fascinating to me. After my master's degree, I thought about going into prosthetics, so Whoa. I did some volunteer work <laughs> um, here in Arizona at artificial limb specialist, um, but decided to go PhD route instead. Um, so. No, but, I, I, yeah, I, I love the biomechanics of it all. Oh my God, uh, the one guy who had the um, uh, he was a below uh, double leg below the knee, and they designed those. Uh, almost like lower limbs, but they were loaded within carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. And so as he started sprinting, obviously he was slower out of the blocks, but he started generating more kinetic force. Mm-hmm. And then it was like this idea of velocity. And so he was increasing his speed as everybody else is kind of hitting their strength curve and then just trying to finish. The dude they allowed in the Olympics? Yeah. Well, he bad ending to that story. I don't know if you know that one, Rachel. Um, to ch- just... A South African guy. Yeah. The uh, well, the Seahawks name is Shaq Griffin to transition off of that dude. But uh, yeah, there's awesome. Did the guy in South Africa didn't like there was like a murder or something weird. Yeah, he ordered a hit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hmm, a bad deal. Frowned upon. But but uh, let's look at like the technological advance. And what I'm excited about was the biomechanics and the fact that the way they designed the springs that he was running on actually stored energy. 
And he, you know, and the idea of like, well, this is a whole debate. (laughs) I mean, it's do you, Rachel, would you allow that gentleman to participate in the Olympics? Oh, putting me on the spot, huh? For his legs, not his behavior. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and then the next question, Um, yeah, we'll get into some of the other stuff too. Yeah. I mean, in the Paralympics, yes, but in I mean, if there's some type of mechanical advantage that he's given, isn't that the same as, you know, taking steroids or something, right? You're not allowed to, I don't know. Well, personally, that's the Olympics I want to watch. I want to see the non-drug tested Olympics where we start figuring out different biomechanical aids to add people. Like, let's figure out like technology and performance enhancing, and then let's figure out who watches that Olympics. I'll pay per view that one. I think you just wrote a new plot for a movie. (laughs) Or, no, what's that Hugh Jackman where he, like, does the robot fighting? Um, I watched that with my son, and he loves that movie. So, basically, yeah. um, I don't know the name of it. No. uh, Yeah. But Shaq Griffin, the former Seahawks, he's a free agent, Mm. Rachel. Okay. Plenty of of cool training videos. He played played at University of Central Florida. So there's some videos of his coaches training him some power explosivity some lifting weights and then even getting was it an accident or was he born with uh born with without a hand yet um and and i know this is kind of twin he was a twin both both brothers played at university of central florida yeah i mean uh and, and i know this just from my client um back in uh california when i asked her about it she's like oh no it was way better to be born without a hand and I was like, why? She's like, because I don't have any feeling in this thing. She said the people that she'd met who'd lost a oh, hand yeah. later on in life, there was always like the nerve endings or the feeling. She's like, my thing is dead. Let's speed it up. Oh, and, and like, the phantom pains, right? Yeah. And so she was mm-hmm. like, I never knew what it was like to have a hand. So she was, she's like, uh, from the time I was little, I mean, it's just like everything she did. It was so interesting, her mannerisms and how like smooth and really like, when you met her, you almost had to like look for it to even notice it because she was real good mm-hmm. about like kind of keeping it close to her body. And it was just really interesting. And she's like, oh, no, this has been the way I've always grown up. So I just have to figure out ways to do things. And she's like, I'm much happier, have, you know, between the two. I wish I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm glad to have never have had it and lost it later. I was like, right. Yeah, okay. I grew up with a kid um, just below the elbow. Didn't born without an arm but he played quarterback and eventually he grew to the point where they just he became center so he was able to snap and played the guitar dude was very talented individual yeah damn i feel like an underachiever now oh you know he's a good good dude um well what what else any other questions john uh i'm i mean the i mean i, I know you're pretty probably pretty early within the data collection and so it's you're probably like, uh, we have these kind of hypotheses or ideas of what we're going to try to hopefully mine out of this. But, um, I mean, what's the, you know, and we've talked about the end goal, but, I mean, are there any major surprises or anything that you didn't see coming where you're like, wow, that's that's really groundbreaking? Because, I mean, suicide's a hell of a deal. Like, I, like it's, um, it, it's really interesting. If you look at the historical implications of suicide, there's this idea of, like, control. Like, I'm going to control when I exit this, you know, this plane of existence. Uh, or, you know, and then there's also the feeling of, like, longingness that I've disappointed so many people that I cannot physically go on anymore. And then there's, you know, the stigma attached for a religious deal where, you know, if you kill yourself, you can't enter heaven. I mean, it's really, 
Like there's so <laughs> many different variations in every culture from, you know, the ancient Greeks I mean, whatnot have all looked at suicide, at, you know, in different light. Um, you know, I mean, the I was just watching a whole series on on uh, on like the evolution of the samurai that's on Netflix with like feudal Japan. And what is it, Sepakura, where the, you know, the ceremonial, you know, I've dishonored, now I have to disembowel myself, where that was like their saving grace, where I've been dishonored, now I have to kill myself to somehow regain face. So there was like an honor within suicide, uh, you know, within the Japanese culture for that time Mm -hmm. period. So it's pretty Mm -hmm. fascinating that like every time period, every culture has their own take on suicide. You know, some it's this terrible sin and you can't enter heaven. Others, it's how you save face and your family can continue to live. So it's uh, um, it's just, yeah, I just wonder the cultural implications and more importantly, like how, it, you know, how we are portraying it and more importantly, you know, how we prevent this because I feel like this is something that's preventable. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it definitely is preventable. Um, I think some surprising points um, for me were really more about um, the behaviors that I've learned. Uh, You know, some veterans, like the older groups of veterans typically tend to move out to rural areas, right? Um, And so they become more isolated, but yet social, social isolation is also increasing their risk of suicide. Um, So although they feel more comfortable you know, out in these rural areas, is it actually adding to, you know, suicidal ideations at all? Um, I also think, you know, from that you don't really see addressed in the research, but there's a whole nother realm of suicide that um, I found just from talking to veterans. And then my um, father also did a lot of work volunteering his time assisting with um, community efforts for veteran suicide prevention and, you know, worked with some different groups, um, in the Valley, um, and has had many conversations with veterans too. And, um, it's, you know, not something that's as talked about, but the number one thing that this group had found was, um, a trigger for suicide was guilt and feelings of guilt, um, whether it was over, you know, acts that they'd performed or even just uh, survivor's guilt as well. And so hearing that from their perspective, but not ever seeing it addressed in the research, it was just a little surprising to me um, that I, you know, not reading anything on that. And maybe that's because there's more things that would have to be explored. (laughs) in that realm that maybe places people don't want to go uh, with it. Um, But yeah, that, I mean, that is also something that at some point, you know, I don't know if it's um, personal or how we address that necessarily, but it was just quite interesting, those findings. Uh, Years ago, I read a book on the, um, on the Hell's Angels and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like kind of the history of the Hell's Angels and more importantly, like the one percenter biker clubs. And they Mm -hmm. started actually after, I want to say like World War or I was actually after Korea, I believe, where or World War Two, uh, where guys came home and they felt that they weren't part of society. So they kind of banded mm-hmm. together, you know, create, created the motorcycle gangs and actually all of the original kind of one percenter motorcycle clubs started from 
veterans that came back from war that didn't feel that they could enter back into society. So they bought, Mm -hmm. you know, old shitty Harleys and rode around and caused trouble and basically, you know, like a band of brothers out there just kicking ass on the road, causing trouble. And then obviously it grew into a criminal organization. It was pretty amazing to see the evolution. So, I mean, this is not something that's, you know, new to this, to, to this war and it's not new to this time. So there's always Mm -hmm. been this feeling of isolation and how people are dealing with it. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, now it's become, you know, more of an issue or maybe it's just because it's just gotten, you know, more spotlight on it because we've been on, in war for two, almost two decades. Here you go, John. Right. The Hells Angels Motorcycle Club was founded in Fontana, California. Yep. Near San Bernardino in, in 1948. Yep. Hells Angels was previously used as a nickname by World War II bomber crews as the title of a, a Hollywood film from 1930 about World War I aviators. Yeah, there was uh, people that had that name, but it was Sonny Barger was the guy that was the, uh, the founder of the Hells Angels. And he would, they were, um, you know, obviously Birdie was a big one, but they were based out of Oakland. And where the big Hells Angels house was was actually down the street from where one of our buddies had their college house. We just called it the biker house, and it turned out it was the Hells Angels clubhouse. <laughs> Cool. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, we got I, quite a few of them here in Arizona too. Well, so. they they all bailed out of California and they went out mm-hmm. and started a big chapter out in the valley, and um, yeah. yeah, they have a big big chapter for it. But you know, um, th- yeah, that's uh, those individuals are finding their their purpose, their well, team together. Well, it, I mean, it feels like um, I mean, and this is for any population. I mean, the NFL, and I'll, I'll use that because that's my frame of reference. But mm-hmm. the, the guys that run into problems are the ones that aren't able to go establish their own communities or attach to a community. So they have all these, you know, retired players, this and guys, you know, get involved in these different communities. And, um, I think, uh, you know, the guy, like what the guys do at black rifle coffee is great in terms of like working Mm -hmm. on and creating communities and, you know, benefiting veterans and pulling them together and putting events together to not only like bring them together and connect them with other people like them. And I think that, um, the hard thing about the United States and when I say the U S I think of like the government is it's like trying to turn a battleship. I mean, it's so big that it almost takes these smaller organizations. Um, like we had discussed, you know, these different charities and different groups like, you know, black rifle and, and, you know, the family deal in Arizona soldiers to sidelines and Nate Palin's fit ops. Yeah. I mean, it it takes these individuals that are agile and can actually, you know, be very focused within their mission to go in and make a difference in this piece and uh, I sometimes, when you look at the government, I mean, it's just like the bureaucracy associated with this is huge. And it's like people need help now. I mean, it's for the same reason we started Wade's Army. Mm-hmm. You know, cancer research is just a black hole you throw money into. You know, Wade's Army was about, you know, neuroblastoma and helping the families, which we've been able to do. But it's like if, if you try to apply for government funding or some grant, it's like unbelievable. All they want to do is fund, you know, drug studies. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just, yeah. But um, no, it's yeah. great the organization. We've seen that with our um, our state interviews and everything, um, you know, and from the state entities, uh, they've mentioned they have so much going on that although they say that veteran suicide is, you know, on top of their radar, they don't always have the time to, you know, put forth effort into it. So, yeah, that's why I think we need to bring together and have this collective impact of small organizations within states and communities for sure. So if people are listening to this podcast and they're interested in getting involved and more importantly, assisting and being a, you know, some form of an agent of change for veteran suicide, how, how would you think that they would get involved or where could they start looking? 
Um, well, they can figure out with the um, President Prevents and the Governor's Challenge, there is a state lead, um, I know in 27 states, right? They each have a lead for suicide prevention efforts. Um, so you could, I know it shows the states that are involved on their website. I'm not sure if it shows the lead for that state, but I'd imagine that you could, you know, contact your Department of Health Services and see what the current efforts are and who the lead is for those initiatives um, to try and get involved in any way um, or even get involved with a local organization volunteering your time to help out with, you know, any of the events. Um, I've even volunteered at the YMCA with, you know, hosting uh, events for military families and, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of ways to, to get involved and to help out. And it doesn't have to be any formalized way like you're running surveys or research like I'm doing, right? So that you can um, help out in a lot of different ways. Also, I would say another helpful thing would be if you're interacting with veterans or military members to maybe increase your awareness on just military culture. Um, and there's, I know, different programs out there and different trainings that you can take for free on military Culture. I think Psych Armor offers one. Um, also through the crisis line, they have the SAVE program um, for ways to identify um, whether or not someone's at a heightened risk for suicide. So maybe how they're acting or things that they're saying. Um, so just increase your awareness. Um, and then I think, you know, nationally or even globally, some things that, you know, we could do better is having more of that cultural shift um, for veterans that are, are seeking treatment, uh, for them to understand that it's natural, you know, it's acceptable behavior and to get rid of that stigma that it's a sign of weakness, you know? Um, so really just for us to kind of increase our awareness and try and help change, um, social attitudes towards mental health. So. Cool. Anything else, Dex? No, I believe we covered a lot. Thank Great. you very much, Rachel. Yeah, thank you for coming on another right, episode guys. of Power Athlete Radio. And as a two-time alum, we're glad that you came back. You liked us enough after the first one to come back and help us on the second one. So thank you for, yeah, for taking sure. the time. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you or want more information, is there a social media, email? Yeah, or you can email me, uh, rachel.larson11 at asu.edu. Okay, cool. Well, you heard it here, folks. Thank you for another, joining another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Thank you. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Rachel Larson on Instagram at rlarson underscore 11. Until next time. Bye.